Hey, this is Dan, just dropping you a quick line before you start this episode to let you know a couple of things. What you're about to listen to is one of the classic best of episodes of Assorted Goods in its older format. And by older format, I mean the sandbox and completely disorganized style that Assorted Goods was for its first few years of existence. Now, since then, the feed has been cleaned up and there's 12 of these classic episodes. And you should know, if you're a new listener, that these episodes are not really what the show is now. But they're still good and they're still worth listening to. But just be warned that if you're looking to get into assorted goods as it is now, that you probably want to go to the latest episode in your feed. Start listening from there. Throughout the episode, you might hear certain things get mentioned, like the website or the social media. Now, those have changed. So don't go chasing those websites or links after the episode. Go to these ones instead. The website has now disinformed.ca, CA for, you know, Canadians like me. And that's where you can find all the assorted good stuff that is mentioned in these episodes. You can find the source lists and additional information. They have all moved to there. In terms of emailing, you can email me now with the new email, dan at disinformed.ca. And if you want to follow on social media, Twitter and Instagram, the new handles are at disinformeddan. And hey, look, all three of those are kind of similar with each other, creating some sort of uh, continuity. People tell me that's important. But anyways, whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, I hope you enjoy this classic episode of Assorted Goods. And then I hope you subscribe to the show and come along for the ride with the new episodes as well. And as always, thank you for listening and enjoy. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Well, today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. So, three things, a widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. Let me ask you something. Do you remember what life was like before you had a smartphone? If you're young enough, possibly you don't. If you're a bit older, I'm sure you remember, but you know maybe it's a little bit hazy. What did people do with all those little moments where there was nothing going on? How did we all possibly cope with our existence in that eerie silence when we weren't scrolling? How did we ever poop without being able to read Twitter? Seems like such a distant past now. All right, how about this? Think about how often a day you check your phone. 
Do you know how many times you do it? Can you even ballpark it? If you were to keep track for a couple of days, do you think the number would surprise you? Steve Jobs might have been more on the money than he, even he knew at the time that the first iPhone was unveiled. The smartphone really would change the world. About a decade after one of Apple's many product unveiling ceremonies, the smartphone is now as much a part of daily life for billions of people as food, water, and sleep is. And, okay, I know, maybe that's a bit of a stretch. But it's not that much of a stretch. Did we even notice this shift in the way we live our lives? It's been a slow drip over the past decade, and now we're probably in too deep to ever get out. Our phones are integral to our daily routines. We need them to stay in touch, to stay organized, to know what's going on in the world around us. So the question to jump off from this episode is simply, why? Why are we so hooked to our phones? Or any device for that matter? Why do hundreds of millions of people across the world consistently fall under this spell? Because whether we like it or not, or whether we can admit it or not, we're hooked. Are we our own worst enemy when it comes to the allure of the phone? Or were our phones designed to be irresistible? What goes on in our brains that always brings us back wanting more? Taking a look at the addictive problem of our computerized little buddies on this episode of Assorted Goods. This podcast is created in association with Verboten Productions and the No Phony Podcast Network. To learn more and find more great content, visit ForbotenProductions.com and NoPhonyNetwork.com. Welcome to Assorted Goods, the show where we dive into one topic at a time to learn a little bit more about the world around us. I'm Dan, your host, and thank you for joining me as we dive into another subject today that is rooted in self-improvement or self-awareness or, well, really... Much like the last episode where we talked about procrastination, this is yet another topic that I struggle with personally, and I know that many others do as well. So, it seems helpful to get to know this problem too, and hopefully, maybe, possibly, we can make some changes to our routines, you know, be more mindful of our behaviors. Ooh, a text. Hold on, hold on. Okay, yeah, okay, what? Oh, all right, what? Right. Oh, okay. The podcast. Right. So anyways, by the way, if you haven't heard episode 41 about procrastination, please check out that episode as well. It's really good. And I would love for that episode to continue to do well. So, you know, after this one's finished, just let things roll into the previous episode and, you know, let me fill your eardrums all day. Also, if the show is something you enjoy, please consider adding assorted goods to your obsessive phone diet by subscribing to it, leaving it a rating and a review as well, since I love to get some feedback. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find Assorted Goods on Twitter and Instagram, or you click the contact link on the website, assortedgoodspod.com, where you can also find the list of sources used to write these episodes and some small extra goodies for your enjoyment. Sound good? Great. And yes, I get the irony of requesting you to use your phone to benefit me while diving into this episode's topic. You know, I'm a complicated man. What can I say? And on that note, let's get down to it, because I know I'm competing for your attention before you get that itch to move on to some other app on your phone. So hold on. Don't go. The show is starting. I promise. In today's world, people have a pressing need to communicate and get information wherever they are. Analysts say existing tools don't adequately meet that need. Telephones have come a long way over the decades. For one, nobody calls them telephones anymore. 
But it seems hard to recall a time when we didn't always have these little dopamine machines within an arm's reach. The smartphone really did change the world. For the better? Yes? Maybe? I don't think the answer is so simple. We've undoubtedly broken down barriers and created amazing things because of the internet, smartphones, and social media, all of it. I'm not here today to simply smear technology as bad and scary. Obviously, to make this podcast and have anyone hear it at all, I rely on these technological tools heavily, not to mention my own phone addictions on the side. The focus of this episode is not about how smartphones have evolved themselves. What I'm curious about, and what I wanted to know when starting this episode, is how this addictive trend actually functions in our brains. We know that app developers and the engineers of social media networks designed their products to be addictive and to make us all want to come back again and again. Netflix's documentary The Social Dilemma takes a good look at those aspects of this whole conundrum by speaking to former executives from companies like Facebook and Google to explain how much effort was actually put into making our global spiral into phone addiction subtle and damn near seamless. So we're not looking into that aspect. We know our devices and the software they carry, the apps, they're addictive. But we want to know how it works. What happens within us to make this strange reality we live in? Stop it. Stop with the damn notifications. All right. Smartphones actually existed before Apple launched the iPhone. IBM created the first smartphone in the early 1990s when they released the Simon Personal Communicator. Personal wireless communicators will soon enable people to stay in touch wherever they are. They will be able to connect with information services and computer networks around the world. Oh, little did they know, right? But these devices were like most 1990s technological breakthroughs. Big, clunky, ugly, not fit for mass consumption. It wasn't until the iPhone came out that the starting gun had really been fired. And smartphones began to break into mass public use and become the immensely valuable wave of the future that Steve Jobs had promised them to be. But let's start here by looking at just how widespread smartphone use is. You know, get an idea of how far-reaching the problem of their obsessive use can be. Let's get into some of the numbers and research on the subject so, you know, we can give this podcast some actual substance. So get this. According to the Pew Research Center, as of 2007, when the iPhone was unveiled by history's greatest turtleneck wearer, about 75% of Americans owned cell phones. Four years later, in 2011... After smartphones had a little bit of time to settle in, that number was 83%, with 35% of those phones being smartphones. Now, just eight years later in 2019, I know it doesn't seem like that's only eight years, but 96% of people in America then owned a cell phone, with 81% of them being smartphones. So within a decade, smartphones spread across nearly half of the American population, bringing their total ownership numbers to four out of five people, which, oddly enough, is the same as the number of dentists who recommend Colgate toothpaste. Now, the global numbers, though, are what paint an interesting picture. For one, there's a lot of variation. There's no real set standard across economically developed or developing nations when it comes to these numbers. For example, in South Korea, just about every single person owns a smartphone. South Korea is big in the tech world, though. It's where Samsung is headquartered, for one. In Canada, though, about two-thirds of people own smartphones including me, which is the same in Japan, a country that's geographically much closer to South Korea. I'm just trying to make the point that the trends of smartphone ownership aren't consistent, geographically or economically. 
really seems to vary. There's heavy numbers of ownership, don't get me wrong, but they're not so concrete and clear across the board. But anyways, in 2007, 122 million smartphones were sold worldwide. In 2020, over 1.5 billion. That's an increase in global smartphone sales of over 1,100% in a little over a decade. And to squash these numbers even more, the largest increase occurred from 2009 to 2014, where smartphone ownership skyrocketed seven times over in just five years. So why this surge over a five-year period? Well, it might be a bit foggy to remember now, but 2009 is when social media fused with our new smartphone friends and mobile apps started to take off, really synergizing the power of addicted apps and notifications with the ease of having a device on you at all times. Now that's progress. Social media was quickly becoming the everything for so many people's actual social lives. I remember living through it, and I'm sure many of you probably do too. And so you had to get a smartphone at this time. You had to have the apps and hook in in order to keep up. In terms of smartphone ownership right now, it's estimated that 5 billion people across the globe have a cell phone. It's roughly two-thirds of the planet, with over half of those devices being smartphones. And that number is only continuing to climb every year. The projection for 2021 is that nearly 4 billion people will own smartphones by the end of this year. Now, just to make some comparisons here, the World Health Organization estimates that 2.1 billion people on Earth don't have access to safe drinking water, and 4.5 billion people don't live with safe water sanitation systems, you know, things like sewage. So just consider that for a moment. Cell phones are almost as common as safe drinking water, and are now more common than having a functioning sewage system. Makes you wonder about our priorities a little bit, doesn't it? The point being, though, that in a little over a decade, smartphones have, in fact, revolutionized things. Evidently, they are useful enough to have sprawled to every corner of the globe, and the things that our devices can do are important enough to have a majority of the developed world clamoring for them by the hundreds of millions every single year. We've established that simply having a smartphone has become nearly essential to life as a human being now. But then, what about actual usage on the day-to-day? That seems to be a much more important thing to look at when examining the effects of this widespread ownership. Well, the numbers there also vary, just like the numbers for ownership do. However, it doesn't change that what the numbers tell is pretty alarming. So back to some stats from the Pew Research Center. We'll use America as an example again. Sorry, America. But in 2018, a study was conducted and found that about 8 in 10 adults use the internet daily which is not surprising considering how much of our lives now take place online, even the important things like our jobs or paying bills. But that same study indicated that 28% of adults claimed to be online, quote, constantly, with 45% saying they go online multiple times per day. Now that constantly number, though, goes up to almost 50% for the 18 to 29 age group. Well, of course, and I mean, that's the category I fall into, and I'm not going to oppose that stat, but that's just accessing the internet. What about just phone usage more specifically? Now, one study was conducted where 94 participants, a diverse group selected from over 100,000 candidates, were monitored for seven days with an app on their phone, which is, again, ironic, I know. But the study found that on average, over a seven-day period, participants touched their phones, that is, swiped, tapped, or clicked on their phone, 2,000 
617 times a day. Now for heavy users, it went up to 5,427 touches per day. Now, just for fun here, if you sleep eight hours a day, which might be an overestimation for those of us who are addicted to our phones, but that would mean you tap on your phone about five and a half times per waking minute of your day. That's commitment. Now, in terms of hourly usage, the average was 2.42 hours a day, with the heavy users averaging 3.75 hours per day. And now there are other studies out there where the numbers are even higher than that. But sticking with these ones here, if you add that up in a full seven day week, it's wild because then the average time spent using our phones would be roughly 17 hours on average and up to 26 hours for the heavy users per week. That's a full day out of your week. And just to play the same game again here, but if you sleep eight hours a night and are a heavy phone user in this category, then out of the 112 hours you were awake in your week, you'd be spending just about 25% one quarter of your waking weeks on your phone. And remember, these usage numbers are far from the worst that have been found in different groups of people. So, yikes. Now for a little more fun, let's do some more math here. Woo, math. Now if you're a heavy user of your phone, you would then spend on this average from this one study, so just bear with me there, but this would equate to 1,000 365 hours a year scrolling around on your phone. The equivalent of 56.8 full 24 hour days out of your year. 15% of all the hours you have in your year, just on your phone. All right, now get this. Author Josh Kaufman once suggested that in order to become proficient with a new skill, such as playing an instrument, you would need to invest 20 hours into that skill to get yourself going. And then after 20 hours, you'll be good enough at that skill to have some level of competency. And then you can decide if you really want to continue and develop that skill to a higher level. 20 hours. So again, if you're a heavy phone user, sorry to pick on you folks, but that means that per year, you could dive into 68 skills a year. 68. I won't harp on that, I know. But as a bit of a phone addict myself, it's a wild number to hear. Just imagine how impressive your dating profile would be with that many skills. My God, you'd run out of room. Now here's another tidbit. iPhone users apparently unlock their phones an average of 80 times per day, which is once every 10 minutes. Seem like you maybe? I know it seems like me. Now, Android users are not much better, unlocking their phones about 110 times per day. That's me. Now, one study even suggested that over 50% of people don't unplug from their phones while on vacation, with the average number of checks per day still sitting at roughly 80 while on vacation. So often we literally can not check out of this. What else can this be described as if not an addiction? If phones were illegal, there would be crime rings, trafficking in mobile data, people huddled in corners and alleyways just trying to get some sweet internet use. Now, just for fun, I even put up a poll on the Assorted Goods Twitter account where I asked followers to let me know how often a day you believe you check your phone. At the time of this recording, almost two-thirds of you, I know I did my own research, can you believe it? But two-thirds of you said you check your phone somewhere between 50 and 100 plus times a day with almost nobody answering in the 10 or less category. I mean, even the listeners are backing up the science here. 
And although I recognize the flaw in the study, mainly because folks answering my Twitter polls are probably already above average phone users, but, you know, still, just piling on here with the stats. Now, for teenagers, phone usage is much worse, unsurprisingly. Really, no one's going to be shocked by that. But here's the data we have. A 2017 study found that half of teenagers believe that they are addicted to their phones. Well, admitting the problem is good, but two-thirds of parents feel the same about their kids. 80% of teenagers check their phones hourly. 72% felt that they needed to respond or act on notifications immediately. 77% of parents feel their kids are distracted by their phones. But parents, on the other hand, aren't really faring that much better. 69% check their phones every hour, with half responding to notifications immediately. Numbers from 2019 are even more alarming, with teenagers apparently spending on average seven hours a day on their phones. I'm not going to do all the math on that one like I did before, but tweens aged 8 to 12 are also spending well over four hours a day on their phone. Now, actually, let me just draw you back to that idea we were talking about a moment ago, the concept that it takes 20 hours to develop a skill. And then wrap your head around and think about how generations are missing out on developing other skills. How many hours are putting into just looking at their phones instead of picking up an instrument? Boy, I sound like an old man. But hey, anyways, at least we've got a whole lot of content creators now, which is ironic on my part, I know, again. And I don't mean to sound like an old man, but is it wrong? Am I wrong about that? How many skills could be developed amongst young people that are just being lost now in aimless scrolling? All right, let me get off my soapbox and continue on. Anyways, from those numbers of teens' usage of smartphones comes then the unsettling problem of the statistics of self-harm amongst teenagers, which have skyrocketed since when? Well, since roughly 2009, when social media apps hit mobile devices, which, as we said earlier, is about when smartphone sales started to really boom. Amongst 37 of the world's most economically developed nations, 90% of young people use social media, which is mostly used through mobile devices. And since 2009, unsurprisingly, self-harm rates have gone up. Hospitalizations for self-harm incidents, up. Suicides, up. And statistical analysis of the numbers are showing a very likely causation between the use of phones and social media and these mental health incidents. And yet, there don't seem to be any solutions or even suggestions on working on this problem. Maybe it's because cell phone usage and mobile apps and the advertising and all the money that's in there is too lucrative a business to start getting people off of it now. There's far more financial incentives in keeping people hooked than there is in getting people away from their addiction. But okay, let's take a breather here. We're running through all these numbers just to drive home the same point. The revolution came, baby. Over the past decade, a major slice of the world is hooked into the mobile device digital sphere, and we never looked back. Now, we can rattle statistics off for a long time if we wanted to. Seriously, there's a lot more research being done in this field these days. But allow me to lay it all back out for you real simple here. Smartphones are now as important to the daily lives of people across the globe as the actual necessities of life, whether it's for actual practical use or for the overwhelming majority for the use of the social communications and entertainment aspect. Young people have grown into this new world and become hooked from the beginning. And can you blame them? People born around the year 2000 and onwards have grown up with devices as long as they can remember. This is the world they know. And we set them up for a mental health crisis because we didn't know or really understand the risks and the problems that could arise. 
Device usage in social media over the past 10 years feels a little bit like what life must have been like when smoking was common before people realized it could be lethal. And honestly, as it turns out, device addiction absolutely can be lethal. But it's not just young people. Adults are users too, and they're also hooked. Smartphone ownership numbers are continuing to skyrocket, and they're not slowing down anytime soon. Media and advertising has almost completely shifted to the mobile format. Advertisers have actually almost pretty much abandoned our previous obsession, television, and invested heavily into mobile. So, you have to wonder, when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone, did he imagine all of this? Now, this leads us to the focus of the episode. I've slammed you with the idea that smartphones are everywhere and usage is a problem for everyone and it's growing and getting worse and the sky is falling, yada, 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 yada. But how do the addictive aspects of these devices really work? So there's a good case to be made that there is an addiction here. The ownership numbers are one thing, but the numbers of usage are what seem to point that way. Hours upon hours a day, day after day, week after week. I don't think we have to argue whether or not there is an addiction problem. The numbers seem to show it. So then, for one, why don't we actually view it as a major addiction problem? And lately, I've been coming to terms with that idea. You know, it's the first step in the 12-step program for addiction. Honesty. Admitting that you have a problem. So, can we do that? Can we admit that there is a problem? When you think about your own behaviors, do you think you have a problem? Probably not. And if you don't think you do, what are your reasons? Are those reasons sound? Or are they more like dressed-up excuses for your behavior? And I say your, but I'm also speaking about myself here, too. I know my excuses are probably pretty flimsy. And if we draw back to episode 41, when we were talking about procrastination, we touched on that idea of the fraudulent excuse, where you give a reason for why you can't do something or you can't change, and it sounds logical, but there's more to it that we're just not willing to admit. But what do you think? See, the thing is, this addiction is really not destructive. It's not like being hooked on heroin or pills or something. But the severity isn't what we're really dealing with. It's the noticeable change in behavior. Checking your device dozens upon dozens of times per day, every day, not being able to step away from it from all that long. I mean, people on vacation can't even put their phones away. That is a behavior change, which has been created by your device usage. Now, severity may vary, but the basic principle is still there. Maybe you disagree. I mean, think about something like coffee, for example. That's a substance, and it has an effect on us. And people do get addicted to it as well. But people don't ruin their lives for coffee. You don't hear stories of lives destroyed for that sweet, sweet coffee bean. Phone use is kind of similar. Is it addictive? Sure. But the effects aren't devastating, so it doesn't feel like a big issue. At the beginning of the episode, I asked you if you remember what life was like before you had your phone, your social media, your apps. If you do recall those times... Do you recognize that things are different now? It's not the whole world that was revolutionized necessarily, it's us. Our behaviors that have never been the same. But again, we're getting our brains working here, so you know you decide for yourself as we go along. So then, let's examine that. How our behaviors have changed because of smartphone use. When we swipe to open our phones and start diving into our apps, we do it, why? Because we like to, we think. I mean. We're not going to waste our time doing something we don't enjoy or that feels harmful in the moment. Something addictive has to have a pleasurable pull to it in order to bring us back for more. Whereas drugs can create a chemical dependency in our bodies, our devices and apps can do something similar. 
But instead of inserting a substance and creating a dependency, our tech addictions cause our brains to create their own addictions from the inside. How? Well, you probably heard this before, and you're probably mouthing it out loud right now, but it's because of dopamine, a neurotransmitter that sends information from one neuron in our brains to the next. And the brain likes to release dopamine when we engage in things that we like, such as eating food. Mmm, food. Or during sex. Mmm, sex. Now, this is the part of the topic that I already had in my head coming in. It's a dopamine thing. Except I realized that I actually had no real idea what that meant. Dopamine is part of the reward systems of our brains. And it plays a vital role in our moods, motivation, attention, emotional responses. A lot of important stuff. So already our devices are tapping into a very important chemical in our brains. The first step to creating a behavior change. Dopamine can create desires and make us want to seek things. It could create feelings of arousal and change our goals. Which I mean, yeah, of course. Something that connects us to the pleasures of life, food, sex, happiness, enjoyment. How much of our lives are driven by seeking out all the things we like and feel good doing? And that takes us back to the idea of the reward system in our brains. Dopamine, for a long time, has always been linked to pleasurable experiences. With the belief being that when we experience something enjoyable or pleasurable, that our brain gives us a little hit of the stuff and whoosh, ah, how nice is that? Now, experiments have been done in the past where rats press a little button and get something good, like food or a drug, and sometimes they'll press that shit until they die. Oh, went out doing what they love, little guys. Good for them. But it's these reward system pathways that are what these devices and apps prey on in order to keep us users coming back. Which, by the way, when talking about this subject, there's something kind of poignant about calling them users. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, anyways... It's just a stupid thought from my brain, but the fact that by design, our devices and the software that goes along with them create a feedback loop like this is one thing that I find hard to wrap my head around sometimes. Here's a little story. A few weeks ago, I had a bit of an experience that kind of rattled me. I was laying on my bed and I was scrolling through Instagram and I was using the explore feature. Now, if you don't know what that is, there's a function on Instagram where you can get an endless feed of content that come from sources that you aren't following. So they're not your friends or the people that you've chosen to see content from. You can just kind of get this endless waterfall. The thing is, though, is that this feed is curated based on your usage and your interests. And the more you use it, the more the content that randomly appears becomes geared to what you apparently like. And it's not so explicit as in it's not giving you content that you most obviously want. It actually reacts to how long you look at individual posts, for example. It starts to cater to what you want whether you know what that is or not. But what shook me up wasn't that. It was that all of a sudden, I looked at the time and something like 20 or 30 minutes had passed. And I realized two things. One, like so many of us experience all the time, I hadn't noticed that passage of time at all. But more than that, secondly, I didn't remember wanting to do this. Like, I didn't remember laying down on my bed and thinking, I want to scroll through Instagram for a little bit. That would be fun. I genuinely could not recall a conscious decision to spend my time that way. Just poof. Before I knew it, 30 minutes of my life had slipped away like that. And I didn't recall being in control of that decision. Yikes. Now, just as a little experiment from me to you, next time you're scrolling through apps, try to remember if you really decided to do this with your time. Or if it was more of a reflex. The training of these feedback loops that users like you and me experience seem to be so good that they're capable of becoming autonomous. That is, becoming things that we do without conscious thought. 
It becomes so routine to check your feeds or to check your notifications that we don't even have to think about it. We just want that little dopamine drip. Whether we're an active user, someone who posts and gets likes and comments and views and engagement and all that great stuff, or you're more of a passive participant like I am, just viewing content endlessly. And that endless part is also a big player here. There's no end points. No, thanks for seeing all you can today. Come back tomorrow. Have a good one. A good comparison I found when researching was how casinos are intentionally built on their interiors, where the exits are hidden from clear view, and there are no clocks, and the stimulation of sounds, colors, music are all over to keep guests in a bit of a daze and focused on what's important, spending time and money in the business. So our brains feel good when we interact with our phones. I mean, isn't that what we like to check them 80 to 100 times a day and beyond for? To get something out of them that we like? To see sports highlights and analysis, video game clips, pictures of gorgeous people dancing or posing or showing off their expensive crap, hilarious memes, amazing videos of nature, people doing stunts, whatever the case is. We go because we want something we enjoy, and baby, do these devices give it to us. But think about this for a minute. On a scale of 1 to 10, how high would you actually rate your moment-to-moment -moment experiences of this pleasure? Sure, you find something cool every now and then, you know, a meme that makes you genuinely laugh out loud. But the overwhelming majority of it? What do you think? Maybe a three? A couple of fives? So why is that? If you've ever been a substance abuser of any kind, or even something small like coffee, you might find that after a while, the high, so to speak, is weaker. You've developed a tolerance. So maybe now you drink two extra large coffees a day instead, or you smoke two joints to get sufficiently baked. I'm attacking myself now, but people will keep coming back to their phones, to their reliable addictions anyway. So why? Well, we all chalk up our phone addictions to dopamine. Sure. I mean, it's kind of the basic understanding that we have of it. But as it turns out, the understanding of dopamine and its role in both addiction and reward system pathways has actually changed in recent years. And we're not quite addicted to what we think we are. So here we're going to take a quick break and hear a couple of messages from some fellow podcasters. And when we come back, figuring out that dopamine problem, understanding more about why we're so hooked, and then maybe, maybe some solutions, if we really have any interest in changing our behaviors at all. But hey, we'll find out. And Assorted Goods, we'll be right back. Do you live by small bodies of water surrounded by trees and other wildlife? Is that geese shit? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you have found a home here at the Brook Reading Podcast. Each week, I read a book while nestled in my small New Jersey apartment and gaze out the window at a brook. Then I jump online, talk about it, ask for your opinions, and bitch about something for approximately five minutes. If you would like to join this madness, Check out the Brook Reading Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Radio Public app. Let's step into some animal feces together. Ever wondered about the people walking around right in front of you? Who they are? What they're really doing? The truth might surprise you. I'm Shannon Hull, host of Right in Front of My Face, the podcast talking about big things happening right in front of us. I interview ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Our social media feeds don't give us the real truth, but this podcast does. 
Find me at rightinfrontofmyface.net and anywhere you listen to podcasts. You never know what's happening right in front of your face. All right, welcome back to Assorted Goods. We're taking a look at being hooked on our devices and how it's affecting our brains on this episode. And when we left off before the break, we were thinking about dopamine and the feedback loops and reward systems that our devices create in order to keep us coming back for more. So we know that we get dopamine from the little goodies we find when we dive into our devices. The entertainment, the content, the colors, the music, and gorgeous supermodels, and memes, and DMs from our friends, and people trying to push their mixtapes, our Snapchats and our retweets, all of it. But there's more to dopamine than just the obvious. Now, there are four major dopamine pathways in the brain, three of which are considered the reward pathways. Those three are the mesocortical, the nigrostriatal, and the mesolimbic. Yeah, look at me with the big words, eh? These three pathways, though, play a role in the aspects of our behavior we mentioned before the break. Memory, cognition, attention, emotional behavior, pleasure, a lot of things that are major drivers of how we live our lives. And these pathways are often dysfunctional in serious cases of addiction. Now, I'm going to read you a little blurb about these pathways that I found from my research. Quote, All three become active when anticipating or experiencing rewarding events. In particular, they reinforce the association between a particular stimulus or sequence of behaviors and the feel-good reward that follows. Every time a response to a stimulus results in a reward, these associations become stronger through a process called long-term potentiation, end quote. That's what's so dangerous about these pre-designed dopamine loops our devices give us. They are really preying on pieces of our brain that drive our day-to-day -day behaviors and routines while making the feedback loop stronger in the process. And we hardly give it any thought. Just think about that little story I told you before about how I didn't remember consciously taking out my phone to do some scrolling. And I've asked you numerous times to think back and try to remember what life was like before our devices. You know, in those boring moments of life where there was time to kill. Our behaviors have changed. Now, for hundreds of millions of people worldwide, whenever there's a single second of not being engaged with something else, what do we do? We pull out our phone and open an app, send a text. Do anything but simply be bored. That feeling of boredom, or the lack of stimulation, seems to have been harnessed and then retrained to make users go straight for their relief in the form of a little scrolling time. Ah, oh, I missed you, social feeds. Make me feel good again, please. But the thing about dopamine and its role in addiction is that for a long time, it's actually been misunderstood, or more accurately, it's been misappropriated. The typical thought process has always been, and I know this is how I always thought of it at least, but that when you experience something enjoyable or pleasurable, you get a little dose of dopamine from the experience. So in the context of our phones and devices, you know, you open Facebook, for example, you see people liked your post, or you've got some new messages, and you feel great, and whoosh, in comes that dopamine. Oh, feels good, man. Except that's not totally the case. If you noticed in the article I just quoted, there was another part of the experience that produces dopamine. New research has now shown that the moment of that dopamine hit doesn't only come from the pleasurable experience itself, but instead, it also comes from the moments of anticipation leading into it. So it turns out 
that dopamine is not the feel-good chemical that we thought it was. Dopamine does not make us feel good, and it doesn't tell us how much we like things. Dopamine teaches us how and where to get the things that we need or just the things that we like. What happens is you feel the urge to look at something that's that motion, that's that motivation, that curiosity, and that is likely fueled by a short dopamine release. And so you pick up your cell phone, you open up your feed, and you look at your photo on Instagram. Now that gives you a little bit of a reward, which then stimulates more dopamine so that you take more action because you're anticipating more reward. And so then you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. So you get a little bit of a reward, which makes you want to seek, which gives you a little bit of a reward, which makes you want to seek, and you just get going in this loop. We're surprised the first time we get a cheeseburger, right? Someone hands us a cheeseburger out of the blue, and dopamine says, hey, something good just happened, something I didn't expect. But what it's really doing is it's telling us to remember all the things that happened before we got that cheeseburger and try to figure out which of those things are actually related to it, actually predict the fact that we're going to get a cheeseburger. Now, I'd be lying if I said that all that cheeseburger talk didn't have my brain floating away towards food. But those two talks that I just put clips in there for, you'll be able to see both of them right on assortedgoodspod.com as soon as this episode drops. If you want to see a long talk about dopamine, about cell phone usage and drug addiction, they're both great. And they're actual genuine experts, not just me doing a podcast, you know, so check those out. But anyways, that's the thing that we've been missing when understanding the specifics about how dopamine factors into our addictive tendencies. And that goes for more severe addictions to things like drugs as well. In the context of loving our little computerized friends, though, this revision of how dopamine works in these reward system feedback loops should provide a little explanation for why we keep checking in on our phones. I mean, in the first half of the episode, we talked about how people check their phones an average of 80 to 100 times a day. But again, think about the actual time you spend scrolling or looking at memes or whatever the case may be. Are you experiencing a true level of enjoyment in those moments? Are you really laughing your ass off every single time? Or is the fact that we pick our phones up, scroll, put them down, pick them up, scroll, put them down, and on and on and on and on, is this more aligned with this newer understanding of dopamine? We check over and over because the act of checking, the slight moments where we unlock our phone, click our app of choice, and watch it load up, creates this moment of anticipation, which we now know is another way that dopamine will reward us. What could be waiting for me this time? What surprise will the algorithms bestow upon my lazy brain? The dopamine release that our devices and apps give create a behavioral change through reinforcing these moments of anticipation. And then we're caught in this loop. Because, yeah, we get something out of the entertainment value or the social interactions. But we do also get something out of the act of going to check. We're hooked in on both fronts in a depressing two-pronged dopamine cornholing which is a term, by the way, that I'm planning on trademarking. And now drawing back to the aspect of how this is all by design by the developers of these technologies, you know, we can keep the thrill of anticipation going. How? Well, haven't you noticed that there is not only no bottom to our social feeds, but if we scroll back up to the top, we can just refresh them and then poof, all new crap to look at. Or 
we can close the app we just spent a half hour scrolling and then reopen the same app right away and once again, all new stuff! On top of that, it's why there seems to be an almost endless nudging of notifications. Like, alright, you ever get those Instagram notifications that some person you only kind of know has posted for the first time in forever? Which, I mean, come on, who cares? Or, if you use Twitter, you'll get notifications about a tweet you may be interested in. Or Facebook reminds you of someone's birthday, whether you've ever talked to this person or not. It's all about giving you the little nudge to create a little bit of anticipation to pull us as users back in. So then once the app opens, it's, well, hey, better spend some time scrolling or sending messages and looking at my feeds because I'm already here. Now the next part of how dopamine plays into our device addiction problem is, again, how our behaviors change through the formation of habits. There's a concept called the Atari model of habit formation. Obviously not to be confused with the old video game systems, the Atari model of habit formation refers to the five stages of forming a habit. Attitude, trigger, action, reward, and investment. Now I'm sure you can imagine how these work in the context of phone and app usage. Attitude. People who get hooked are people with traits that make them susceptible to getting caught in habit-forming reward loops like this, but the appeal is now so wide that it's far from being simply vulnerable people who fall into it. Then there's the T for trigger, and that's easy. The endless notifications, how easy it is to access the apps, making them free, for example. Then action, actually using the apps and games, sending messages and Snapchats. Then reward, that's a layup. Give me that dopamine payoff and whoosh. Ah, feels good. And then finally, investment, which is probably the most interesting one to me because it's maybe one of the more underrated pieces of all of this. Once people start to use apps or social media networks, they not only form the habits, they form an almost lifestyle that's centered around it. The socialization aspect of this ramps up even more. Let me drop you another little story. Before I started podcasting, I was on the quick track to abandoning using social media. Seriously, it's not a joke. I was this close. But once I started podcasting, I found that building a listener base when you're relatively socially inept in the real world requires you to participate in the social media spheres of podcasting and beyond. And so I joined Twitter after not using it for almost eight years prior to that. Now, a few years later, I'm hooked on Twitter and Instagram still. Two apps I use for the show to promote, to connect with listeners and fellow podcasters. And now, I actually kind of feel like I can't quit. I'm invested into it. I have friends. I have obligations. I have that dopamine reward feedback that I have yet to be able to quit. And the investment aspect is even heavier for young people when their social lives are almost entirely online. You can't just tell a teenager to simply stop Snapchatting, stop texting, because they feel like they will literally not exist. Their social lives are deeply invested, and the cycle of the Atari habit formation is complete. But beyond dopamine, what other brain factors are we dealing with? Well, a 2017 study from researchers in South Korea found that teenagers with higher levels of social media and internet addiction also had an imbalance between two chemicals in their brains, a neurotransmitter known as GABA, which slows down brain signals, and GLX, which speeds them up. Now, the imbalance found in teens with the addiction problem were in favor of the GABA neurotransmitter, the one that's slowing the signals down. And this kind of imbalance 
is unsurprisingly associated with higher levels of anxiety and depression, which, as we mentioned before, are problems that are currently on a runaway rise in groups of people under the age of 20. This is rough, man. Really, people joke about our brains being hacked these days, but it's seemingly true. For heavy users, the chemistry of their brains actually changes. For casual users, their behaviors change based on the manipulation of our reward systems. Now, by this point in the episode, maybe you're circling back to a concept we touched on earlier. You know, why is it such a big deal if the problem isn't that harmful? You know, maybe you're right. Maybe I come across as dramatic about all this stuff. Maybe I'm just a really young old man yelling at the confusing world around me. And maybe there's a point there when you say it. I mean, it's not really that harmful on the surface if you want to scroll your phone day and night. I mean, you likely still go to work, take care of your kids, pursue other interests. And yeah, sure, that's fine. I have to reiterate the point, though. The generations are now growing up in an environment in which rates of self-harm are still rising. So in reality, this problem isn't actually harmless. But then maybe the solutions we need should be more focused on age control for using these apps, for example, like a minimum age in order to open a social media account or something. I don't know. I'm not a legislator. At this point, we're probably too far gone to go back anyways. And if there were rules, they would take years to be passed through government by politicians who never understand these problems anyway. And even then, kids would probably just find a way to skirt around the rules. But putting aside the issues that young people face as a result of this brain chemical manipulation, and I must say, that's a massive and concerning problem to simply put aside, but let me boil it down to this. To me, it's a matter of control and of ownership. Are you comfortable with the idea that there's a good chance that the way you harmlessly spend your time may not actually be you making a conscious decision about how to spend your time? Are you okay with the fact that, although you may find some enjoyment, you keep it up because you've pretty much been trained, kind of like an animal, to come back for more? Like one of those experiments with rats where they just keep tapping a button to get a delicious reward? Again, maybe Dan's a bit dramatic, and I concede that's a possibility. It's something I do quite often. I mean, I've never been social media popular or had my phone blow up with texts or DMs. I don't make a living on Instagram or anything, so maybe I'm just an outsider throwing stones. Honestly, I'm always second-guessing myself in that regard. And I bet I'd probably enjoy all of this a lot more if I was experiencing more of the benefits. We really should wrap our heads around the concept here, though. Within a decade, nearly half the population of planet-freaking Earth has obtained devices that connect us to the infinity of human knowledge and a nearly endless source of social contacts and entertainment. We can do almost anything now, with almost anyone on Earth in an instant. People in every corner of the globe are hooked into this. And not only are people all over in possession of these devices and the apps that come with them, on average, humans are using these devices for major portions of their daily lives, which in turn, as it so happens, is the result of intentional manipulation of the pathways inside our brains. And that manipulation is effective no matter where you are anywhere in the world. Our brains are all functioning in the same sort of ways. So yeah, maybe I'm a tad dramatic, but... I really don't feel like there's simply nothing to see here. In this episode, we're thinking about our own personal roles and thinking harder about whether the decisions and choices we make are actually conscious decisions that are our own choices. It seems like something worth considering. But, you know, as always, what do I know? I'm just a regular old podcaster. So now comes the part of the episode where I try to make things a little more positive, try to wrap our heads around some potential solutions. 
That's how you know you're getting close to the end of my long ranting episodes, is when we start to try to bring it all home like this. But I mean, holy crap, I think we absolutely all need some sort of solutions to think about here today. And some of them I'm sure would seem obvious, you know, just don't use your phone anymore. But if kicking addictions were easy, we wouldn't have problems with them, now would we? So really, first and foremost, let me say that I don't advocate for you to simply never use technology or throw away your old phone and buy a flip phone in order to fix being hooked to your devices, or whatever the case may be. In fact, the guest from my previous episode of Assorted Goods, Dr. Joseph Ferrari, in his book about procrastination, he actually talks about the pitfalls of technology. Now, the point that he makes in his book is that we can't simply not use the technological tools we have, and that we shouldn't use them as an excuse for not getting more important things done. Instead, we have to learn to use these tools productively, because they are capable of elevating our abilities rather than hindering them. And it's the argument that tech executives use when they still stand by their products, despite the glaring issues with them. They'll say something like, oh, these are just tools to be used. And it's really not a bad point. I actually agree in a lot of ways, except that we so easily use these tools incorrectly, mostly because they're designed to be used incorrectly, but also because we have no rules or legislation or safeguards to limit the problems that have come up. No laws have been able to keep up with the wonders of our technological advancement. But Dr. Ferrari says that essentially, we need to alter the circumstances of how we access our devices and technological tools so that the addictive time-wasting aspects of them are less accessible and the productive tools we have access to are more on hand for when we need them. I guess you should consider uninstalling your Instagram and then learning to use your calendar function more, for example, which I'm sure all of us will do as soon as this episode is over. Not to be a jerk, but I really believe in you. It's just, you know, prior history and all that. But anyways, the simplest changes can sometimes be big difference makers. For example, and this is one that I'm currently in the works of doing, but I realized that I was one of those people who looks at their phone right before they go to bed and then first thing in the morning every damn day. So the problem to me was actually something small. I used my phone as an alarm clock, like a lot of people do now. But think about what a setup that is for ourselves. Using our phone as an alarm clock seems intuitive. I mean, geez, we use it for everything else, so why not? But I realized that this is what makes me have to take my phone to bed with me and then to reach for it before my eyes even open in the morning. And then once I'm semi-conscious, yeah, well, it's already in my hand. Might as well check all the notifications from the night. I mean, I'm screwed before I've even peed in the morning. Yeah, some of these behavior changes are sometimes our own doing as well. My solution now is to go buy a classic alarm clock and try to break that pattern so I can leave my phone charging in another room overnight. I'll let you know how that works out for me. Now, from some of the research I did, there's also this advice that I found, quote, to disengage from devices, advice varies. One strategy is to de-casino the phone as much as possible. Many experts recommend turning off all non-essential notifications, for instance, or even stripping the screen of color to make the device less appealing, end quote. Now, this is the type of solution I like, although, fair warning, it is a solution that requires us to take action ourselves. And we just don't like having to make our own choices now. Ugh, is there an app for that? Seriously, but personally, after I watched that Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, I actually tried this kind of solution. I went through my apps and my phone settings to try to only receive notifications for things that I should have my attention paid to. Like if someone sends me a message or tags me in something directly. 
And already, I find that I reach for my phone less often. The little light on the phone isn't blinking as much. There's not as much hitting me up all day, every day, all the time. Trust me, it takes maybe two minutes to do. And in the course of the thousand hours a year you're likely going to spend scrolling, come on, you can fit that in, can't you? Now that quote I just mentioned around the concept of trying to de-casino your phone is the essence of any solutions, any chance we have of shaping our behaviors back towards something that we ourselves are in control of. We have to take steps to break the nudge, swipe, scroll, reward cycles that we constantly find ourselves in. But more than that, we need to recognize on a surface level that there is something inherently wrong about the anxiety we have in association with our devices. You ever misplaced your phone? Like even for a minute? Can't for the life of you find it? Or you ever seen someone else go through this? What typically happens? At first they're confused or you're confused. And then the anxiety sets in. And then panic. Where the hell is my phone? How can I have lost it? Where could I have left it? Now anger and frustration starts to set in. In just a matter of minutes, the fact that we can so quickly experience a genuine panic over misplacing an item that you know you'll find a few minutes later seems kind of unsettling. Here's another idea. Try removing one thing that you can honestly admit to yourself that you're addicted to. For me, it was my personal Instagram account where I was heavily addicted to the explore feature, as I mentioned before. Except now, I find myself using that same feature through my podcast account. So I'm probably a terrible example. Although in reality, I didn't really break things off. I just moved my problem from one account to another. So how am I ever going to get clean from a habit that I keep around for accessibility anyways? Now another idea, and I know there's a lot of irony here, but you can download apps that track your usage. The problem with hearing the numbers that we talked about in the first half of the episode is that they can really seem abstract. And oftentimes people won't accept that they may be in those categories of using their devices that much. You know, they'll say something like, yeah, sure, other people maybe use their phone for four hours a day, but me, I'm not that bad. So put a tracking app on your phone and then check in. And maybe the shock of what you find will be enough to rattle you into a little change or at least getting the wheels spinning a bit if this episode didn't help you at all in that regard. Again, though, these are touch-and-go solutions, because in reality, we're dealing with a chemical behavioral change inside our brains, which means that solutions need to be more firm, like me half-ass quitting Instagram. Half measures won't do. Dopamine fasting is a new trend where you try to deprive yourself of dopamine hits in order to break the bad habits like screen-obsessed patterns. Except that technique requires you to basically cut off contact with the world completely. And most regular people, you know, we have to go to work, stay in touch with our families, work on screens, follow up with less addictive interests. So I don't know if dopamine fasting is a great solution for most people either. However, it's not a bad idea if you can manage it for a day or a weekend even to maybe balance things out. I think the best takeaway we can get from this episode is this. For one, be aware of your actions. That is, try to consciously pay attention to whether or not you're reaching for your phone or your tablet or your laptop because you want to or because it's become pretty much a reflex in your daily routine. And also, turn off notifications. After this 58-minute guilt trip of an episode in which I've hypocritically told you to rethink a problem that I can't even fix myself, the thing is, much like how people constantly fail their New Year's resolutions, We always like to pick goals that are too big. 
Nobody completely upends their behaviors or routines in a day or even a week. Our little computerized buddies didn't become an addictive problem overnight. It took years of subtle training by app developers, figuring out how to keep us all coming back for more just so they could sell advertising. But it was a slow drip of change to our behavior because that's how human beings work. It's how our brains work. It takes time to reshape routines and it's never easy. So if you're like me, and you want to start to change some of these patterns, then one, start small. Turn off your notifications, for example, seriously. And second, go easy on yourself. Maybe you uninstall an app and then you go back again just for one thing. It's okay. Don't beat yourself up. Try it again. Take some small steps today so you can start to shape new behaviors into the future. Seriously, if you're still listening to this episode, first of all, thank you, congratulations. But right now, be honest with yourself. Are you hooked to certain apps? Do you have routines that feel a little bit beyond your control? Then my challenge to you is this. Remove one thing right now, one thing that you waste your time on, and then embrace that anxiety you feel when it's gone. That's just the feeling of shaking up your habits, and it will pass. Change takes time. But we need it because the person deciding what you do with your free time should be you. So now let's take the very first step to unhooking from our dopamine loops because I got a feeling we may like what we find when we do. I want to thank you for listening to Assorted Goods. I hope this episode had some value to you. I don't know if anyone will change their technological habits. I mean, I don't even know if I will, but at least we're thinking about it. If you have any comments, questions, feedback, anything at all, you can drop a line into the talk box at talkbox at assortedgoodspod.com or use the contact page on assortedgoodspod.com, the pod's website where you can find a list of the articles used to write this episode for a little sweet additional reading material. You can also find some extra bits and pieces such as the full-length videos of those clips that I used from a couple experts earlier on in the second half here. So go and check them out. You can also find past episodes, past article listings, and little bits of associated content related to this podcast. I hope you'll stop by the website and check it out. Now for the truly ironic part as we leave, if you're still hooked on your socials, follow Assorted Goods on Twitter, at Assorted Goods PC, or on Instagram, at Assorted Goods Pod. But please, for the love of God, turn the notifications off. And if you like this show, feel free to give it a rating or a review. Tell a friend, recommend it. Anything would be sweet, man, and I appreciate it every time. And as always, all credit for the information used in this episode goes to the writers, journalists, researchers, academics, everyone out there doing great work to discover the wonders of the world and allow dummies like me a chance to make shows like this. If you're out there, consider supporting quality content wherever you come across it. Thank you again for listening. Please come back again. I'll see you next time here on Assorted Goods. Ooh, a text message. Put a spell on you Because you're mine You better stop the thing that you do I said, oh, watch out
This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness.